0: Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. And today we get into the most intimate heart of our subject matter that we've been developing over the past two episodes. Last time we introduced the structure of all our experience, at least one way to understand that structure. And that means we totally left behind the narrow world of the start with why theory that served as a leaping off point for these contemplations. In this more expansive space we can enter the heart of our own being and we can see something that might liberate us and help us to heal ourselves and our world. Understanding the structure of all our experience helps us to enter A more skillful way of life. We could call it the essence of the philosophical or spiritual path to gain intimacy with our own experience and to understand the nature of reality and the nature of our own mind. So if you missed the previous episode it's worth your time to pause this episode to just stop now and start with that one or even with part one of this series which gives some important reflections and context. But part two more specifically focuses on the structure of experience. So if you can, go back to the beginning. If not, start with part two. Because once we understand the structure of experience, we can understand that there is no such thing as not having a meditation practice. And we can also understand why there is no such thing as meditation. What we refer to as meditation relates to a fundamental dimension of all our experience a part of that interwoven structure. Specifically meditation refers to the how of our experience or what we could call the quality of our being. At bottom we're either more awake or more asleep in our lives. For A very significant number of people maybe the majority maybe it's the vast majority in the dominant culture meditation practice consists of things like checking our phone checking email which also might just mean checking our phone watching YouTube and Netflix scrolling through Instagram and Facebook shopping online and and things like that we remember to check our phones again and again But how often do we remember to check in with wisdom, love, and beauty? How often do we remember our awareness itself? We often practice distraction in countless forms, including task switching, impulsiveness, repression, and so on. But we don't always practice intimacy with our own mind. Intimacy with the very nature of mind and intimacy with the mind of nature. On the other hand, a growing number of people have exposure to mindfulness and other forms of meditation practice, and they may say that they do have a meditation practice. But in an important sense, there's no such thing as meditation, because the structure of experience arises totally interwoven, and the how of that structure goes completely together with the what and the why. If we don't practice mindfulness or other forms of meditation in a holistic and comprehensive matrix, a whole philosophy of life, we can actually create more problems for ourselves in the world. And that is not at all what the wisdom traditions would mean by meditation or any other practice that cultivates this intimacy with the nature of mind and the mind of nature meditation should be healing ultimately. Meditation should heal our suffering and the suffering of the world. That doesn't mean that we practice it in order to get something, but that if we directly or indirectly make more problems for ourselves and the world, if we directly or indirectly create suffering from meditation, we are definitely on the wrong path. It's a nuanced thing to contemplate because, of course, sometimes just sitting down to meditate, we reveal a lot of suffering that we've been repressing. And that is important. It's important to face reality, to face things as they are. But generally speaking, a lot of people are diving into meditation and mindfulness practices without a holistic and comprehensive philosophy of life. And usually that's not a good idea. It's better to pause that practice and to rethink and try to approach it in a more holistic way. Another thing we touched on is something that we can shine a little more light on now and it's interesting because it's a place of beautiful coherence in philosophical and spiritual traditions that we might not think of at first when we're thinking of places where spiritual and philosophical traditions overlap we might not put our finger right here but our contemplation on the structure of experience and its whole context brings us to this very interesting place we seriously questioned our naive assumption that we know how to intend things and that's a really crazy thing. Wait, wait, you don't know how to intend. We seem to act intentionally, and we often claim to have good intentions. Why is it that the road to hell is made of good intentions? And why do we seem to have a world that's so chaotic right now? Not in a good way, not, not in some sense of, of chaos, the Greek archetypal energy but as if the world is hanging by a thread, as we watch the, this mass extinction of species, as we watch the climate collapsing around us and inequality growing and injustice perpetuating, are we intending this or not? Do we know how to intend something good? Do we know how to intend wisdom, love, and beauty? The philosopher Immanuel Kant, and I not one to quote Kant very often, he was clearly brilliant, but he's not really so much a sage as he was a very brilliant thinker. But that's good. You know, there are important things that we get from brilliant thinkers. And I quote Kant. We're going to consider something Kant said here because it's so interesting to find resonance between somebody like Kant and then something so vastly different. Kant claimed that there is nothing in this whole world. And indeed nothing even beyond this world that we could call good without qualification except for one thing. What is the one thing, the one and only thing in the entire cosmos that we could call good without qualification? See, because some things, Kant believed everything is really good just relatively because what can be good in one place and in one amount and so on and so on might be bad in another, just like water can kill you or water can save your life. And everything is like that. Everything has a qualification on its goodness, except for one thing. And Kant says that that one thing is a good will. A good will means willing the good immediately because it is good. And Kant argues that only the, the divine has this kind of will, and that we humans, the best we can do is practice. We try to practice in accord with a good will, but it's the mark of the divine to just have this good will, to immediately act for the good, in other words, the divine knows how to intend the good because it has this perfect kind of intention, the goodwill. Now, we find a remarkable agreement in the Buddhist traditions of all places. And it's not the only place, but it, we're just looking at these two poles because really we, we'll find this everywhere. But in the Buddhist traditions, we encounter the concept of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta literally means awakened heart, fully awake mind. Bodhi is awake and citta is both mind and heart, one word that signifies mind and heart. Such a mind and heart immediately wills the good, immediately presences wisdom, love and beauty in any given situation. Now, even though this is the nature of someone totally enlightened, which is the Buddhist version of someone who is divine, you could say in the Buddhist traditions, many of them are they're theistic in the sense that there is a place for gods, but someone who is totally enlightened is even above the gods, which is a little bit weird from the standpoint of the dominant culture because we, we've put the divine at the top. But in these Buddhist traditions, the divine is not quite at the top, because the gods are not fully enlightened. They might be quite remarkable, have lots of special powers, and they might be quite worthy of reverence and so on, but they're not fully enlightened. And so, this bodhicitta is the nature of someone totally enlightened. And if we were coming from the dominant culture, we would say, well, that's what Kant meant, Kant, Kant puts God at the top, so God has this bodhicitta. But from the Buddhist standpoint, even though bodhicitta belongs to the most enlightened, everyone in the traditions that revere bodhicitta is invited to practice in accord with it, just like Kant invites us to practice in accord with the divine will. And so you see in the Buddhist traditions extensive mind-training practices. And all of this mind-training Or heart training we could refer to it as is a training of our capacity to actually intend wisdom love and beauty immediately without hesitation without gap and that means shifting our center of gravity dislodging our self-centeredness and relating to life in a far more expansive and skillful way this is just such an interesting parallel to see this pinpointing of something but We find something like this in almost every tradition because we find things like, for instance, the basic concept of being honorable. Honor carries such an important place in so many traditions. And being honorable means having reliably good intentions. The reverence for honor pervades many wisdom traditions around the world because it signifies a will that our own community our own human community, as well as the wider community of life, and even the divine itself, recognizes as wise, loving, and beautiful. Once we begin to understand the structure of experience, we can practice more deeply, and we can approach a wonderstanding of the mind of nature, as well as the nature of our own mind. And we can begin to understand things like the importance of sort of revolutionizing our capacity for intention. But there's more to see here, especially in relationship to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. And so let's contemplate with a little more nuance. This could get a bit confusing at times, because these are subtle matters. Try and stick with it and return to this contemplation again. We need direct experience, not just concepts, but we're framing the possibility for new experience. And it requires reflection and then practice, not just practicing alone, but practice with a community of friends as well as with the community of life. And so we're going to try to get something even more important, we could say, than the structure of experience, but to look with more nuance So the structure of our experience and and all our activity is also the nature of our mind in an important sense. And it's the mind of nature. We can see mind and nature as a non-duality and thus further see nature and culture as a non-duality. And that kind of seeing, to see mind and nature as not two things and nature and culture as not two things, that would create a radical shift of everything in the dominant culture and also in our own experience. So we want to think with some care about these matters, which again can be a little subtle. Why is also the wisdom dimension of experience. That's the nuance we're going to add. Why is wisdom what Is the love dimension of experience and how is the beauty dimension so wisdom love and beauty is the why what and how of all our experience and these three go totally together again we're saying something subtle but very very important why is the essence of all our experience And the essence of all our experience can be described as openness or luminosity. Luminosity here doesn't mean it shines, you know, (laughs) as if when you open your eyes, your experience is shining all over the place, although people can have certain kinds of light experiences from meditating and so on. That's not the nature of mind. The nature of mind is that it illuminates. So the essence of our experience is that experience illuminates what we experience. That's very important because we might think that fire illuminates. We go into a dark room, we want to turn on the lights because that will illuminate the room. But photons don't illuminate anything. Only the essence of experience or the essence of mind can illuminate. Fire and other kinds of light can only be fire, can only appear as bright and hot in the space of our mind that's it. The why of our experience relates to what we make space for in our lives and what our experience then illuminates. It's such an important thing. Just let let that sink in for a moment. Wait a second. Fire doesn't illuminate. Photons don't illuminate. Mind, the essence of mind, illuminates. That is its luminosity, that it allows the photon to appear. It allows the fire to appear and be experienced. Think of this example. If we become obsessed, say, with electric cars, okay, this is not a, a, well, it's a bit of a consumer example here, but I'm sure you know people like this. They are obsessed with electric cars or some other kind of car, And everywhere they go, they notice electric cars. We might go out for a walk around the city for an hour or so with a person like this, and we might not notice anything. We might not register a single electric car. But then our friend who's obsessed with them has noticed 20 or 30 with great clarity. They know the makes and the models. They know something about the design features and so on. And everything is like that. When we get passionate about tango, for instance we start to think of many things in terms of dancing. We might have a, a certain experience and say, oh, that was very tango. You know, maybe it was a conversation with a friend or a, a, a meeting that we conducted and it just felt like a tango. We become aware of our bodies and minds in new ways. And when we listen to any kind of music, we notice whether or not we could dance tango to that music. It becomes an intention that immediately affects our listening. And it transforms our relationship to music, to our own bodies and minds, and to life itself. Traditional tango music also becomes very salient to us. You know, if we were walking down the street, and this might be noisy, busy, but there's tango music playing in an apartment overlooking that noisy street, we would hear it right right away, just picked out from all that noise, we would recognize that music. And our own name is like that, as are the voices and faces of those we love. We can hear our name in a noisy room very easily, and we recognize our friends and loved ones in a crowd. We recognize their faces or their voices or even sometimes their way of moving. We can recognize them. That's because these things become salient to us. And we can practice our lives in such a way that we allow more and better things to become salient. We make space for them. We can make space for our beloved's most subtle bids for attention, you know, when your beloved just sighs or has just a little micro expression on their face. And we have space for that. Whereas in a dysfunctional relationship, those things are ignored. And the people in the relationship might say they didn't even notice it. If we're a parent, we can sense our child's most subtle micro-expressions and changes in mood and body language. We make space for that. And we can make space for what the river needs from us. We can make space to notice how the trees are. Make space to receive the communication of raven and robin, of wolf and whale, of honeybee and horse. So often, those things just aren't salient. And we haven't made space for them. Even though we have all the space in the world, you could say we're not making the space. The nature, the essence of mind, should say, essence of mind is that spaciousness, that openness. Now, all of this means that in order to start with why, to go back to our touchstone, because it's valuable, there's something to the notion that maybe we should think about what our why is. And in order to start with why, we have to recognize that the why of all our experience is that we are an openness. We are an openness. You are an openness, a luminous openness. Without that luminous openness we have nothing. This openness, its luminosity, its capacity to illuminate, its spaciousness allows all things to shine forth. Why do you hear my voice right now? Because you are an openness that allows that voice to appear. And because you have made space in your mind And heart for love wisdom what a wonderful thing but nothing could appear nothing at all if you were an absolutely empty openness if the openness were just nothing then nothing could appear but you know you hear my voice You know you hunger for love-wisdom, for liberation and insight, for meaning and magic. Thus you are aware. And that is the nature of what you are. The essence, the why, is open and luminous. And the nature is knowing or aware. A funny way to put it would be that the nature of why is how, and the essence of how is why. Because we're referring to this one interwoven thing. But then we must ask, what will we allow to appear? That is the capacity of mind. So we have the essence, why, the nature, how, and the capacity, which is what. And let's come back to capacity. First let's clarify. Again, three dimensions of experience. The why, what, and how, which we can refer to as wisdom, love, and beauty. Why is the essence? And this is wisdom. The how is the nature of mind, the nature of experience, which is awareness, most fundamentally. The how of our experience is awareness, but we should also be clear that this means it is beauty. The how is the beauty of wisdom, love, and beauty. Awareness which is the how, means things as they are, ultimately without a duality between the observer and the observed. And this is the essence of art. The mind of beauty is the mind of meditation. And this is the mind of art. It's also the basic nature of proper thinking. The basic nature of proper thinking when we have let go of all our superficial habits of thought, however clever they may seem, and we arrive at the silence of the original mind, which is neither ordinary thinking nor is it a lack of intelligence. We could call it non thinking to signify that it's not thinking nothing. Nor is it thinking something. It's just that. Art has to do with seeing things precisely as they are. That's the nature of beauty. Creativity is not something we add to things, but itself is part of our nature. So... The nature of beauty is awareness itself, and this is the how of our experience. Now I know this, again, can be a little bit subtle, maybe even confusing, because it's really shifting the way we think. We ordinarily do not see what sees, you know? People tell us to pay attention, but here we're attending to attention itself, attending to awareness, attending to the nature of mind. People tell us to use our mind, but what is that mind we're using? To learn how to see better, we have to see our seeing. I love that line from Huineng, who said, the meaning of life is to see. To see what? To see our seeing. To know the nature of reality and the nature of mind. And so it's a shift to suddenly like you know Copernicus a big revolution to look at the looking and the looker the why of our experience intimately relates to what we love what we nurture and make space for what has become salient to us and what becomes part of our way of thinking Even the artist has a why. We all have a why. Why do we allow some things to have space in our hearts and others we close off to? We allow something into the space of experience. We let something into the spaciousness of our experience first and foremost out of love. In other words, love belongs immediately to the why of our experience. That's why love wisdom is one word, love wisdom. Love belongs with wisdom immediately. And just as we have said, the dimension of what comes totally interwoven with the dimension of why. Now let's give this some space and care because again, it's subtle, it can feel confusing. We are saying that we cannot think about the why of our experience. We cannot skillfully start with why. We cannot skillfully intend anything unless we deeply recognize love. If someone asks us to reflect on our highest values, if someone asks us to start with why, and we speak honestly, we can only name what we love. And that means starting with what not with why. If we say we value family then we're just admitting we love our family. If we say we value thinking differently then we are admitting we love to think differently. Love is the value or the why that comes before all the other whys we could ever have. Love is every manifestation of why. The encumbered ones and the liberated ones. And love is what we do with our lives, with this precious life we have. What we do is the clearest reflection of how our love really is. Not how we wish it were. Not what we tell people. But how it is. If what we do involves spending a great deal of time drinking, then we love drinking. Even if we claim to love our friends, our family, and the Divine, in practice, we may love the drinking more than we love them. We often love our comfort more than we love our ideals. And we surprisingly love the suffering we know more than we can manage to love the potential joy insight and inspiration that remain unknown to us all of this happens because our love can become encumbered that's why we can love things that on reflection seem misguided silly and even unethical nevertheless at the bottom of it all, we can still see a basic energy to take care of ourselves and others and to love this life, this world, this mystery. It's remarkably intimate, even when it's encumbered and confused. We spend all that time drinking, trying to make money, trying to become successful in this limiting culture and doing whatever misguided things we do because because of encumbered love. Because something in us loves life and wants to take care of ourselves and the world. And we just don't know how else to do it. We haven't arrived at that wisdom yet and that skill, that quality of being. Now this doesn't excuse our behavior, but if we sat a long time with that encumbered love, without moving, without fighting it, if we just sat with it, without acting on it either, just sitting with it, so we could see it as it is, it could shift completely. It's not easy to sit with the soul's profound longing, whether encumbered or not. Even the soul's most liberated longing can make us, from an egocentric standpoint, extraordinarily uncomfortable. But the spiritual traditions invite us to enter fully into our own capacity for love. We all long so deeply to experience happiness. We long to experience our love in its most liberated form. We long to live a meaningful life, which means doing work we love, doing work that expresses a meaningful love and not the work of a fabricated, superficial, materialistic love. Now that may sound harsh, but fabricated, superficial, and materialistic describes the main current of the dominant culture. Most jobs can only provide us a fabricated or confected love and meaningfulness and we so hunger for love and meaning that we try to satisfy ourselves with these confections. But we and the whole world go unnourished and things keep degrading. Our soul cares so much for the whole cosmos that we want to enter it fully and realize ourselves. That's why we can hate ourselves so intensely. Why we can we become so incredibly critical of ourselves and others. We love life and we intuitively know the sacredness of the entire cosmos, the meaningfulness of it. And that profound love and intuition gets encumbered. It gets pulled into fear and aggression, craving and attachment, confusion and ignorance. Another way to say all of this is that what is the capacity of mind and experience which is fundamentally love and compassion. That's what we've been saying. What we do arises from our capacity and how we have answered the question what will we do with all this capacity? We have the capacity for fear craving, clinging, confusion ignorance, aggression and hatred we have the capacity for great evil and also for incredible goodness, compassion courage, insight transformation and healing Everything we see in the world, all the wonders, all the beauty, all the insanity, it all expresses the capacity of our own mind. When we reflect on all of this, we can sense how cheap, how limited and limiting the start with why theory and the basic economic orientation of the culture are we can sense how fragmented and fragmenting it all is. The whole mindset of the dominant culture. To summarize, we should point out that our activity expresses wholeness. There is no starting with why unless the why we start with includes the what and the how. And thus the wisdom traditions have us start with a why that includes love and includes a commitment to wake up to what we are. The spiritual traditions always invite us into the wholeness of our activity, invite us into our own wholeness, our own wholeheartedness. And this wholeness transcends the ego, inescapably so. The wholeness our activity unfolds on a cosmic scale and it roots us to our landscape. It roots us to places and to the powers that manifest through those places. When we work with the wholeness of our activity in a philosophically skillful way, we begin to presence our highest values, to authentically practice and realize them. The realizing means bringing them f- to fruition, and not merely to understand them conceptually, but to understand them, alive and a love. Instead of having a gap between what we hold most sacred in our heart, on the one hand, and how we live our lives on the other, instead of consciously or unconsciously chasing things we would never truly revere if we sat and reflected honestly. We start to make real the values we find most wise, compassionate, and compelling, the values we find most sacred, loving, and beautiful, and we cultivate clarity and coherence in our lives. Coherence. Our lives begin to hold together, not to be incoherent in a culture that itself is incoherent and encourages it. And we often go from one situation to the next, pursuing one agenda after another. Often, we end up pursuing the agendas of corporations and the politicians who serve them. And that makes our lives and our world muddy and disjointed, makes us incoherent. Our life is not holding together the way it could because we don't carry our values as intentions, as a wholeheartedness from one situation to the next. Our mind lacks its fuller clarity. And we don't have an honest and vitalizing sense that we are making our values real, moment to moment. Even now, we can pause and reflect just for a second on what we find most important in life, not merely what the ego would like to make itself feel better, but what we see ourselves living for, what we are, and what we might become in our fullest potential. We can make our values more real right now by letting go of our agendas. Letting go of our hopes and fears. And rooting ourselves in whatever forms of wisdom, love, and beauty speak to our hearts. Whether we think of it in terms of living the teachings of Jesus or Muhammad or Confucius or another great world teacher. Or we think of it in terms of taking care of our family and friends and helping the world Or somehow we bring it together. And it doesn't matter whether we feel particularly religious about it. That's not the issue. What matters is that we get in touch with values that seem intrinsically important to us and seem fundamentally part of the cosmos, part of nature, and thus the essence of what we are. We get in touch with some sense of sacredness and wonder. Our philosophy of life must always carry a sense of sacredness, and thus our philosophy of life is not a matter of personal opinion. If we value love, we don't value it because we think of it as a matter of opinion. We think of love as real, perhaps as the essence of the divine, as somehow fundamental to what makes us what we are. Martin Luther King Jr. published a book called Strength to Love because he understood love as part of reality. He wrote about the path of love. In a handwritten note, King inscribed the following vision. Love is the greatest force in the universe, he wrote. It is the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. We don't have to be religious to receive the wisdom in King's words. When we think about why we value love, we realize love is not a self-centered value. We think that somehow we depend on love, that we can and must attune ourselves to love, with love, because it's basic to reality. We don't seek refuge in opinion, but in reality. Or or if we do seek refuge in opinion, it's mistaken. Only reality can give us refuge. So we have to start with reality and do our best to explicitly, continuously avoid self-deception. What is real? if we had to think about what we must all start with, because we want to start with reality, what intention would we form? It's not always easy to enter this question with enough intimacy. What values and intentions really, really make our lives worth living? What gives us a deep and abiding sense of meaning? What do we love with our most liberated love? And can we start with love? When we reflect carefully about these sorts of questions, we really go into them, and we begin to discover a sense of meaningfulness, a sense of what we really value, a sense of what we would really want to start with. It seems that we find those reflections, we find those meanings and values verified not only by the soul's intuition and insight, but also by the resonance and kinship we feel with all other human beings. We feel a kinship with every serious spiritual, religious, and philosophical tradition in the world. It's an immediate friendship, kinship, intimacy, one family, because every tradition, every tradition that has sustained a people truly has a place for wisdom, love, and beauty. And this creates a common ground that we all share, a place for us to stand together in mutual respect, mutual illumination, mutual liberation, Every tradition relates to wisdom, love, and beauty as real properties of the world, of the cosmos. And our highest values inevitably reflect wisdom, love, and beauty. We may pick out particular aspects of these, like family, friendship, or learning. But we still find ourselves sitting in the same council as the sages of every culture. Every major tradition also has a place for sacredness gratitude and generosity. Every tradition acknowledges the sacredness of life and of the mysteries that make life function. Every tradition invites us to cultivate a sense of wonder and gratitude for the whole cosmos and the whole community of life we depend on totally for our existence. And so all philosophical spiritual religious traditions suggest that we begin with wisdom love beauty sacredness gratitude and responsibility practicing such values again however we frame them in particular terms by practicing such values we practice kinship with the sages and elders of all times and places And we practice kinship with the whole community of life. Not just the human beings, but the whole shebang. And doesn't that make most corporate slogans sound rather pathetic and deluded? Does it sound important to challenge the status quo and think different? Or does it sound important to take a stand for what really matters? for what we all depend on, for what's really real, and thus to root ourselves in wisdom, love, and beauty. If a corporation wanted to ground itself in reality, and someone asked, why do you do business? What is your why? The people of that corporation might say, gratitude and responsibility. A sense of sacredness and a commitment to wisdom, love, and beauty. We feel a sense of love and gratitude for all we are given every single day. And we know we depend on the whole community of life for every breath we take. We know the sacredness of this world and we feel a responsibility to take care of the world and its beings, including all the human beings, but take care of all the beings the way they take care of us. We have made a commitment to relate to ourselves, to each other, to the community of life, to our culture, and to the whole cosmos on the basis of wisdom, love, and beauty with a sense of gratitude honor and reverence can we imagine a corporation running on that foundation is it even possible in the culture we have or is this another clear revelation that we need a rejuvenated culture as if we needed more evidence But here, just thinking about our values, how does the culture actually function in practice? What do we think truly matters? What do we think we all depend on? Do we imagine that we have any serious alternative than this sort of orientation to our work? Our life as a citizen, as a member of a family, and a member of the community of life? Do we have any other orientation, even if it means rebooting the whole culture? If that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. If we're off on the wrong track, we're off on the wrong track. And no matter how far we go down the path of evil or ignorance, we can turn around. Might be harder and harder every step we take, but we can turn around. And every other being lives like that, lives like the spirit of what we just considered as, say, a wise ideal corporation's why. The activity of every other being on this planet carries the intention of furthering the conditions of life. Only human beings, in particular, those affected by conquest consciousness, only such human beings think they can have self-centered personal agendas. As Aldo Leopold wrote, the mountains know how important the wolf is, because the wolf takes care of the mountains. If we ask why the wolf does what they do, and if we look with great care, we see that the wolf makes the mountains. The wolf makes the mountains, rivers, trees, and meadows out of their love for them. So do deer. And the deer can't do it alone. They need the wolf, the trees, the rivers, the grasses, all those beings and many, many more together think the mountain into existence moment to moment as an expression of their capacity of mind which means as an expression of love. It's why they do what they do. Why do wildebeests do what they do? Wildebeests are a keystone species. And we can now say, on the basis of ecological science, we can now say that the why of the wildebeest is to make the whole of the Serengeti Wildebeest make soil, grow trees, feed lions and other beings. They further the conditions of life. That's what they do. That's why they do what they do to cultivate the whole of life onward. And all the beings of the world live this way, except humans infected with conquest consciousness, who think they can reject their role as the custodian of being. As caretakers, which means people who must express love, people who must dwell in real places, living places, people who must be a refuge for sentient beings, people who must be themselves a dwelling place for sacredness. To live as custodians of being, as attendants of wisdom, love, and beauty. That was central to the teachings of Socrates. He tried to call us back to our role as caretakers of our own soul, of each other's soul, and of the soul of the world. We are caretakers of being, caretakers of beings. Love and care must be the center of our activity. Socrates challenged the same sort of thinking in his time that we find today. In ancient Greece, there were men called sophists, and they famously said that man is the measure of all things. They would have put it in patriarchal language like that because patriarchy and conquest consciousness have an intimate relationship, and maybe we can't have patriarchy without conquest consciousness. In any case, we find the same mistaken notion all the way through to the present. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre is a good example of a more recent thinker because he quite famously wrote that our existence precedes our essence or purpose. Sartre said that man is a useless passion, again expressing his thought in patriarchal language, but we're not useless nor can we proclaim our use on the basis Of our personal agendas or whatever we think will sell computers, electric cars, coaching services, or whatever other conscious purpose we want to rationalize. That's the thing. If it's a conscious purpose and personal agenda, typically there's some rationalization involved. And it seems we need to rethink computers and everything else we do. Computers, coaching, consulting, the whole economic game. Because if we are a useful passion, And if our use is to cultivate the whole of life onward, if our use is wisdom, love, and beauty, then all our tools need to conform to that use. Our whole way of life has to conform to that sacred use. We certainly find teachings like this in the indigenous traditions, but we also have them in the dominant culture we have neglected the deep meaning and the imperatives of our own teachings and after all we were once indigenous too the memory of it though faint to our conscious mind maybe almost indecipherable to the conscious mind nevertheless remains in many of our myths and the living root of it remains in our wisdom traditions, we can find it. For instance, we got into the habit of thinking that if God made the world for us, then we can do whatever we want with it. But that makes no sense. Any parent knows that makes no sense. When a parent loves their child, then if the child makes a little painting or Christmas card for them, the parent treasures it. My mother kept every card I ever made her, and she even kept cards I bought from the store because they were expressions of love. When we fall in love we feel this way about the littlest things our beloved gives to us. We may hold on to some small trinket for decades, revering it, simply because our beloved gave it to us and we know they gave it to us as an expression of love. The thing is still charged with that and we immediately have a sense of reverence. Now. Imagine if God made you a sweater, made you a sweater as an expression of love. Would you use it to mop the floor or to wipe your bottom? Would you do whatever you wanted with it? Or would you revere it as something sacred? How should we hold the world? If the divine made the world as an expression of love, then it is sacred. The world itself is a sacred act of love. And we should take care of it with far greater care than the most fastidious person gives to their car. We've all seen people who polish their car or their gun collection with exquisite care. How then should we treat the world Even if we feel rather non-theistic, we can't escape the fact that this world gives us every breath. Whether God made the cosmos or some mystery gave rise to it, we fit perfectly into this world. Every breath we take in, half of it comes from the oceans, from the plankton and other ocean beings, and half comes from forests, grasses, and other land beings. When we breathe out, we give back. In our breathing, we can intimately discover our total interwovenness with life, which means the intimacy and care of life itself, right there, every breath. Intimacy. Mutuality. Mutual nourishment, mutual illumination. We only need to realize that as an imperative, as an expression of the essence of how things are. Everything is just like the mutuality of our breathing, the intimacy and care of our breathing, which erases the duality between self and other, erases the duality between inside and outside, between mind and body, between organism and environment, between nature and culture, between mind and nature, all that duality gone, just one conscious breath. Before we start with why, or as part of realizing what it means to start with why, we might start with these basic facts. Before all else comes wisdom, love, and beauty. Before all else, comes the interwovenness of all things that makes life possible And we just talked about the nature of mind, there's no possible experience, no possible life because life needs mind and experience, it's not possible without wisdom, love and beauty it's not possible without this magic of interwovenness this mystery, because it's so subtle and profound So what kind of words, what kind of practice can help us remember and take care of what comes before all else? We can find many helpful teachings in our wisdom traditions, including the indigenous traditions of Turtle Island. Perhaps the oldest continuous democracy that we know of on this planet is the Haudenosaunee Confederacy of Turtle Island. The Haudenosaunee have what they call a thanksgiving address. It varies in presentation, but it's always an address. It's not a prayer, but a practice, a teaching, a way of attuning the mind to reality, a way of attuning to ourselves and each other, a way of seeing the reality of the cosmos in a way Of understanding the why of our activity that goes beyond our personal agendas. The Haudenosaunee have offered this address in many ways. You can find teachings about it online, there are some books. We're going to consider it with some care and sensitivity, in part because in the present context any wisdom teaching can become co-opted by the structures of power at work in the dominant culture. And in particular, we have a lot of karmic responsibility toward indigenous people. So we explicitly do not consider the Thanksgiving address in order to take something, but in order to honor and give back. Again, the Thanksgiving address has been freely offered by the Haudenosaunee. And they have been waiting for the dominant culture to listen and reflect. The Haudenosaunee see these as the words that come before all else. In other words, their version of start with why is in no small part to start with gratitude, as well as a sense of sacredness, a sense of mutuality, a sense of common ground and thus a sense of common responsibility. Another way to put that is that instead of starting with a why that can be turned into a corporate slogan or an ad campaign, they start with a cosmic why. A why that has to do with the nature of reality and the basic nature of our life together. A why that has to do with attuning us to sacredness and wonder, rooting us in wisdom, love, and beauty and creating a coherence among human hearts, minds, bodies, and world. We come together in resonance and in reverence. A Thanksgiving address begins and ends many important events, like council meetings, weddings, ceremonies, school days, and more. It could begin and end each of our days, if we would like to practice it as a way to take a stand against the ignorance and injustice of the status quo, as a way to begin to heal the wounds, those old karmic wounds of Turtle Island and of the world, the wounds of conquest consciousness, the wounds of what our ancestors, it doesn't matter that we didn't do it, even if we're first generation Americans and now we live here. The karma belongs to us now too. we can challenge the corrupt status quo and that is not about making or buying computers it's about living well living differently because the culture doesn't teach us to live rooted in wisdom love and beauty rooted in a place a community of life we depend on and to which we then owe a responsibility a reverence a gratitude A Thanksgiving address could go on for an hour. We're not going to do that here. We're going to keep it short and these addresses can be shorter. So we'll contemplate a shorter version together so that we can just approach a a sense of preliminary understanding. So we could approach a a deeper sense of reverence in our own hearts. We could approach with a certain humility. We can notice that The Thanksgiving address presents both a mandala of reality and thus a blueprint for the mind and heart and that it also invites us to become of one mind, to truly come together. You can imagine how empowering that would be for a group of people because as the Thanksgiving address goes, as the gratitude is given, a phrase is repeated, Now our minds are one. And when that phrase is spoken, those listening indicate their assent and their mutual attunement with each other and with the world. That coherence, we go from a state of incoherence to a state of coherence. It's very empowering for us, for our community, and for the world. So here are a few lines of thanksgiving and again it's a much shortened version so try and listen to the end and acknowledge your own sense of agreement to yourself even out loud if you're by yourself you can just sense it. Today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. We have been given the duty to live in balance and harmony with each other and all living beings. So now we bring our minds together as one as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to our mother, the Earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother we send greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. We give thanks to all the waters of the world for quenching our thirst and providing us with strength. Water is life. We know its power in many forms, waterfalls and rains, mists and streams, rivers and oceans. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to the spirit of water. Now our minds are one. We turn our minds to all the fish life in the water. They were instructed to cleanse and purify the water. They also give themselves to us as food. We are grateful that we can still find pure water. So we turn now to the fish and send our greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. We turn now toward the vast fields of plant life. As far as the eye can see the plants grow working many wonders They sustain many life forms. With our minds gathered together, we give thanks and look forward to seeing plant life for many generations to come. Now our minds are one. With one mind, we turn to honor and thank all the food plants we harvest from the garden. Since the beginning of time, the grains, vegetables, beans, and berries have helped the people survive. Many other living beings draw strength from them too, We gather all the plant foods together as one and send them a greeting of thanks. Now our minds are one. We turn now to all the medicine herbs of the world. From the beginning, they were instructed to take away sickness. They are always waiting and ready to heal us. We are happy there are still among us those special few who remember how to use these plants for healing. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to the medicines and to the keepers of the medicines. Now our minds are one. Now we gather our minds together to send greetings and thanks to all the animal life in the world. They have many things to teach us as people. We are honored by them when they give up their lives so we may use their bodies as food for our people. We see them near our homes and in the deep forests. We are so glad they are still here and we hope that it will always be so. Now our minds are one. Again, these are words of address, not of prayer. So they don't conflict with other religious teachings. Even if we are Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Taoists, or members of some other religion, we can understand, for instance, that the divine or the great mystery made all of this and made us perfectly fitted for it. That's the only way we can survive. We fit this world and we can attune with it we can become attuned to reality. We can do this in part by addressing the divine creation directly, knowing that the divine will hear us in, through, and as these elements. God appeared as a burning bush because God made the plants, and so God can both speak and listen through them. Saint-Hubert experienced A conversion of the heart by means of a deer because God can observe us and communicate to us through animals and so it goes for the whole creation. If we are non-theistic we can recognize our own science which tells us that personification is fundamental to our psyche and that it has real and beneficial effects. Personification relates to the pervasiveness of mind in the world. It's not a matter of mere projection, but of recognizing the mindedness all around us. And we can also recognize that our science has verified the power of awe, the healing and vitalizing role of gratitude and a sense of wonder and sacredness just right there in the science how powerful that is and how foolish it would be to ignore that and even further we can recognize as the great scientist and atheist Gregory Bateson did that sacredness has to do with a proper and skillful way of knowing and being living and loving we live better We love better, we think better when we touch the sacredness of life. In one way or another, we all act out intentions, motivations, visions, and ways of thinking and feeling that constitute the why of all our activity. In one way or another, we manifest particular actions, that reveal the capacity and constitute the what of our thought, speech, and activity in, through, as, and with the world. And for anything we do, we do it in a particular way. Our activity arises in wholeness. Not only the wholeness of our why, what, and how, but the wholeness of a mysterious cosmos that itself arises as a single process unfolding in multiple locations. All of this should seem almost obvious. Love wisdom, after all, makes the obvious obvious again. How could we engage in any activity at all without these three interwoven dimensions? They function like our own body and mind, the body and mind of each activity, the body and mind of the cosmos itself. With a little bit of philosophical training we can begin to enter with awareness into the wholeness of activity, what we can call the wholeheartedness of Of our own activity. We often function in fragmentation and incoherence and the culture, the dominant culture, encourages it. That's its modus operandi, that's how it functions. But we can reconnect with the basic wholeness of our own activity and thus the wholeness and wholeheartedness of the activity of the world and the cosmos that is an act of rebellion. That defies the status quo. We can reshape the status quo. When we begin to reconnect with the basic wholeheartedness of our own activity and the activity of the cosmos, magical and inconceivable things can happen, even in the most ordinary activities. We can touch this wholeheartedness and inconceivability when making tea or cleaning a horse stall. And at such a moment, it begins to heal us. It functions, and we begin to truly function, as if for the first time. Most importantly, this shift into wholeness and wholeheartedness means a wholeness and wholeheartedness in self and world. A wholeness in healing of self and world. In place of the self-help catastrophe, in which we heal ourselves ultimately at the expense of the world, in place of all the delusions of what we call capitalism, we can revitalize and rejuvenate ourselves and the world at the same time. And we can all come alive and alive together. Reflect with care and patience. Give yourself space to sit with what's really, really important to you, important beyond anything, because it's essential to reality, because it comes before all else. And let that begin to be your why in a moment-to-moment way, why you're pouring the cup of tea, why you're opening the car door, why you're tying your shoes. More and more, we can find out what it would mean to honestly and wholeheartedly start with that, start with that most important thing, to start with love, to start with wisdom, love, and beauty all together. We find it moment to moment. And we also find it in shaping our day with certain rituals, things we repeat, things we do again and again as a way to attune ourselves to this greater reality to make ourselves coherent with our own highest values. If you have reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you... That your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.